0: Welcome, everyone, to Episode 4 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and this is our special Halloween episode. Every story that I have for you today takes place on or around Halloween in Ohio. The first story that I have takes us back to the town of Bel Air from last week. Only this time, we're not going to the haunted Bel Air house. We'll be talking about Nathan Brooks Now he canceled Halloween in the town for that year. So sit down, lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. 1995 in Bel Air, Ohio, Halloween was canceled. There was no trigger-treating, no candy for all the little kids, nothing. All because 17-year-old Nathan Brooks killed his parents. The satanic panic was in full swing during this time. And just like most 17-year-olds who were into the darker side of life, Nathan would claim that Satan was his best friend teens thought it was cool and the parents were terrified. I'm sure most kids didn't actually worship the devil, but they thought it was cool to tell people that they did. In Nathan's younger years, he was an altar boy at his church, and he had dreams of growing up to become a priest, but as you'll soon learn, his life didn't really go in that direction. From sources online, it was a babysitter that first introduced him into Satan worship. From that point on, He completely flipped from the nice and polite altar boy that he was to the devil-worshipping occult-obsessed person that he became. People that knew him in school, like friends and teachers, would just tell you that he's a quiet or shy boy, but he's genuinely a nice guy. But only his close friends knew the truth about him and his obsession with the occult. His brother Ryan said that he collected animal bones and other occult items. There were many times that people would suggest to his parents that Nathan should give some counseling, but that wasn't something that they ever took seriously. Unfortunately for them, he wasn't living in a goth-like fantasy world. He was dreaming about something much, much darker. In the early morning hours on September 30th, 1995, Nathan's younger brother Ryan was over at his friend's house hanging out. At about 1.30 a.m., he called home to tell his parents that he was just going to stay the night with his friend Eric, but Nathan told him no, that his parents wanted him to come home. After they hung up, Ryan decided that he was going to stay a little while longer. About an hour later, he had his friend Eric drive him home, but he had no idea how his small act of teenage rebellion actually saved his life. While Eric was driving Ryan home, there was a loud banging on Eric's front door that woke his mother from sleeping. When Eric's mother got to the door, she found Nathan standing there, looking panicked, wild, and out of breath. He asked if his brother was still there, and she told him no, then closed the door, and she went back to bed. Meanwhile, Eric had just dropped Ryan off at his house. The scene that Ryan walked into can only be described as like something out of a horror movie. There was blood everywhere. As Ryan made his way through the house, he discovered his father's decapitated head sitting in a punch bowl in the kitchen. He then immediately went upstairs to his parents' bedroom and found the rest of his father. He had been shot point blank in the head with a hunting rifle and had his head removed with a hacksaw. His headless body was found lying in his bed with arms above where his head used to be. He found his mother lying dead on the floor with a large kitchen knife still stuck into her right side, and she had also been bludgeoned with an axe. It was later determined that Nathan had planned on crucifying his mother, but she was too heavy for him to lift. Throughout the house, there were satanic drawings and writings on the walls, and a note was found that read, Satan will show you peace. Also on the note was a list of names that included their local Catholic priest and at the top of the list was Ryan's name and beside his name Nathan had written Decapitate and Dismember. It became clear to Ryan why Nathan had tried to call him home instead of staying in his friends. He had planned to murder his brother too. Mother and father were second and third on the list with Eviscerate and Crucify next to his mother's name and Decapitate next to his father's name. There were ten other names on the list, and written next to some were Molest, Skin, Eviscerate, and Dismember. There were a few names grouped together, maybe implying that he was going to murder them at the same time. The police were called, and the search for Nathan was on. They found and arrested him at a local cemetery before he was able to kill anyone else on his murder list. When they found him, he confessed almost immediately. He told the police that he had big plans for the night and that he was going to kill himself after all his work was done because it would please Satan. The police searched his home, hoping to find any reason that he had committed such a horrible crime. They found his kill list, books on Satanism and the occult, and a biography on Jeffrey Dahmer. They also found a makeshift altar in Nathan's bedroom. Shortly after, the existence of the list of names was leaked to the public, which undoubtedly terrified the entire town. No one knew whose name was on the list, or even if Nathan was working alone or with more people that the police didn't know about. Were they really safe, even with Nathan in custody? The police weren't sure if Nathan had worked alone or not, and with Satan worship being such a trendy thing in the 80s and 90s, they decided to cancel Halloween. They were afraid that these devil worshippers would somehow harm someone or multiple people as some part of a big sacrifice. The whole town was afraid and just felt altogether unsafe. Fellow students from his school told police that he was a nice guy that just liked to joke around. Another student said he overheard Nathan saying that he wanted to kill his parents, but he just thought it was a big joke. He said it in a joking fashion, and no one ever took him seriously. A lot of people later thought that he made these jokes as kind of a plea for help, that no one ever took serious. The trial started on what was very clearly an open and shut case on a double murder. Nathan's public defendant argued that he was not guilty due to being clearly insane, but they weren't buying it. They brought in three experts to try to determine if there was any validity to the claim, but they were all split on their decision. At the end of the trial, the jury made up of six men and six women found Nathan guilty of two charges of aggravated murder and using a firearm during the commission of a felony. It didn't even take the jury three hours to come back with a guilty verdict. and Nathan will not be eligible for parole until he served at least 43 years of a sentence. So he won't be eligible until the year 2038. So now he sits in prison alone, and apparently he no longer worships the devil. Nor does he believe in the reasoning he used to slaughter his mother and father. He wanted to be famous, but not in the way that he became. He completely destroyed his family and terrified his entire town. And now he's wasting away in prison exactly where he belongs. Our next story takes us all the way up to Sandusky, Ohio. On October 31st, 2010, a 16-year-old boy named Devin returned home from a weekend with his dad. He was only in his house for a moment to change his shirt and off to church he goes, thinking his mom, his stepdad, and brother had already headed there. After church was over, he headed back home and found the house quiet. Thinking nothing of it, he went upstairs and played some video games for a few hours. It wasn't until about 1.30 in that afternoon that he finally noticed that the house was still eerily quiet and he left his room to search for the rest of his family. He went downstairs looking for his mother, Susan. He found her and his stepfather still in their bed with their comforter pulled up over their heads. He tried talking to his mother but got no response. He gently shook her leg, which was hanging out from under the blankets, and still got no response. That's when he decided to pull the blanket from her face. But he was greeted with a gruesome surprise the blood-soaked pillow under his mother's head. The first thought he had was that his mom was pulling some kind of Halloween prank on him. But the longer he looked at his mother's face, he realized this was not a prank. He ran out of the house, not knowing if he was in any kind of danger himself, before looking for his brother. After getting out of the house, he called his aunt and tried to tell her what he had found. She rushed over to the house to try to calm him down and to call the police. After the police arrived, they searched the house and found his mother Susan and stepfather Bill Liskey in their bed, dead. Bill was shot five times in the face and neck with a 22 caliber rifle. Police say that he was most likely killed first because his body was found in a natural sleeping position. Susan was shot three times. Her body appeared to have been moved, like she was awoken by the gunshots that killed her husband, and tried to flee, but she didn't make it out of the bed. Searching the house further, the police went upstairs to Devin's brother, Derek's room. The door was locked. After pounding on the door with no answer, they had no choice but to kick the door down. They found Derek. Curled up in bed, facing the wall with severe blunt force trauma to his head and face. They also found a bloody claw hammer in the house that was consistent with the wounds on his head. After the police spoke to Devin, they discovered that his older stepbrother, B.J. Liskey, was in the house that morning when Devin stopped by to change his shirt before church. The police were able to locate him in the family's cabin and arrested him pretty quickly. After speaking with him, they found out a little more information. Bill and his son BJ arrived home Saturday evening from a hunting trip. They had a few beers with some neighbors and Bill didn't feel like driving his son back home so he made up a bed on the couch for him to sleep over. A neighbor told police that he had heard gunshots about 6.30am on the 31st, which was consistent with the time of death placed on the parents. Derek hadn't been heard from since about 2pm the day before, so the police believed that he was the first victim. When Devin arrived at the house at 9.30am to change his shirt, he only had a brief conversation with his older stepbrother. He told the police that it was an odd interaction with his brother. BJ is usually sad and gloomy, and during this brief encounter, he was more upbeat and talkative. This wasn't the first time that BJ had been in trouble with the law. Starting back in 2002, B.J. started threatening to harm himself. His father, Bill, would call the police, and when they arrived, he attacked them. In 2004, he started threatening to hurt other people, not just himself anymore. And in October of that year, he had hit his stepmother, Susan. Two months later, he was charged with assaulting his stepmom and stealing her car keys. They found him incompetent to stand trial and the charges were dropped. They tried to get him the mental help that he needed, so they moved him into a group home. But that didn't seem to be working. He would get into several fights with other people in the home and his father when he would go to pick him up, resulting in the police being called on three separate occasions. Bill wouldn't give up on his son though. He would visit him all the time in the group home. A week before the murders, Bill would take some vacation time from work to take his son on a hunting trip up to their family cabin, only returning less than 24 hours before the murders. During the trial, he was void of any emotion. He would say things like, I love my dad very much, and it makes me sick every time I think about what I did, and I can't really explain why I did this, but I think it was my mental illness. He entered a guilty plea for all three charges of aggravated murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. In 2015, at the age of 29, he took his own life while in prison. Those are two crazy stories. I can't imagine what it would be like to find my family like that. I honestly don't know how I would handle a situation like that either. I hope that Devin is doing okay wherever he is. For our next story, we're going to travel just over the border into Oil City, Pennsylvania. This story involves the rape and murder of a young girl. I will keep any details to a minimum, but listener discretion is advised. On October 27, 1992, 11-year-old Shawna Howell was celebrating at a Halloween party with her Girl Scout troop. After the party was over, she headed for home. Two hours had passed, and her parents still hadn't heard from her, so they called the police to file a missing persons report. FBI agents, the police, friends, and family all looked for Shauna, but all they were able to find was a piece of her Halloween costume on an old abandoned hiking trail. After the third day, Her body was found at the bottom of a 30-foot railroad bridge. The autopsy revealed that she had been sexually assaulted and killed by blunt force trauma to the head. The police launched a massive murder investigation and even issued a reward of $15,000 for any information that would lead to an arrest, but sadly the case would go unsolved for nearly a decade. Oil City, Pennsylvania prided itself on being a safe, quiet town, but doors were suddenly being locked because the town didn't know who would be next, and the children all stopped playing outside. Trick-or-treating was limited to just a few hours in the afternoon, and that lasted for many years after this horrific murder. It wasn't until 2002 that a break finally happened, DNA from semen found on Shauna's was a match to a man named James O'Brien. O'Brien was already being held on charges of attempting to kidnap a woman. At this point, the police went back and re-interviewed a previous suspect, Ted Walker. Ted admitted to the police that he had a role in the kidnapping, which according to him was only supposed to be a prank. He confessed that he dragged Shauna into his car and drove her to his house, where brothers James and Tim O'Brien were waiting. He claims that the brothers then took Shauna to an upstairs bedroom, and when he heard the girl scream, "Get off me!" he rushed upstairs and demanded that they leave his house. He said that the girl was alive when they left. The police made a deal with Walker, saying that in exchange for testifying against the brothers. He could plead guilty to only third-degree murder and kidnapping and receive a reduced sentence of only 40 years. The O'Brien brothers, however, were both charged with sexual assault, kidnapping, and murder. They both received life in prison without the possibility of parole. It wasn't until 2008 that normal Halloween celebrations resumed in Oil City. And it wasn't until the residents petitioned the city council that these changes took place. Such a horrible way for that young girl's life to end. But I for one am glad that all three men responsible are now behind bars. Since this is the special Halloween episode, I decided to include a creepy encounter with entities known only as black-eyed children. I don't know if they're demons or ghosts, but whatever they are, they're creepy and they only appear at night. So I found a creepy encounter one man had with two black-eyed kids at his overnight job somewhere in Ohio. I'll be reading it from his perspective. It was around 5 a.m. in October 2010. I was taking a smoke break outside when I noticed two teenage boys standing motionlessly and staring at me from across the street. Immediately feeling unnerved, I put out my cigarette and went back inside. No more than ten minutes later, the intercom buzzed. I checked the monitors and there they were. The two boys had made their way over to my building and were now staring into the surveillance camera like they could see me. Through the intercom, I asked what they wanted. They said nothing, but motioned for me to come outside. I hit the speaker button again and told them to go away. They didn't leave, but continued to stare into the camera as if they were watching me as I worked. After about ten minutes of this creep fest, I got fed up and I went to the door to chase them off. Right before I opened the door see them through the one-way glass, and was horrified to see their eyes were completely black. I knew I had to open up the door and tell them to get out, and I decided I'd call the police if I had to. As if the boy could read my mind, the moment the door opened, he said, "'That will not be necessary, sir. We simply need to use your phone. Can you let us in?' I was not about to fall for that nonsense, so I pulled out my cell phone and threatened to call the police if they didn't leave. I made sure the door was locked and went back to the monitor. Only one boy was still there, staring at the camera. Then I noticed the second boy positioned himself out back and was staring into the camera there. I called the police. Both boys moved into a blind spot with no camera coverage. I waited for them to reappear, but they simply vanished. The police arrived around 6 a.m., and both boys were gone. That was definitely a creepy story. I'm glad that I've never had any encounters with black-eyed kids. Has anyone out there listening had one? I'd love to hear about it if so and include it in a future episode. Thankfully, they can't just come into your house. You have to allow them in but other stories I've heard as they have some way of hypnotizing you to let them in. Hopefully I never encounter whatever this creepy entity is. Well that's it for our first ever Halloween special. I really enjoyed working on this episode, and I hope all of you enjoyed the stories. Finding stories that happened on Halloween was a little harder than I thought, but I think i found some good ones. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review. A five-star rating really helps push it out for other people to discover. Come join the Ohio Unsolved Facebook group so you can get all the news on things I have in the works. I'm currently working on a Patreon that will feature bonus episodes not available to everyone and many other surprises. I'll announce on Facebook when the Patreon will go live. If you have any of your own creepy stories or encounters with the paranormal, send them to me at ohio underscore unsolved at yahoo.com to be included in a future episode with all that being said i want to wish everyone a happy and safe halloween and i'll see you guys next friday for episode five don't forget to lock those doors and windows and stay ready for ohio unsolved